0: Hello there, welcome back to the Layman's Historian, episode 44, The Mediterranean on Fire, Spain. Last time, we covered Hannibal's fractious relationship with Capua and the subsequent stalling of his campaign in Italy. Today, we cast our eyes further afield to momentous events in Spain. Although I had originally intended to include Sicily in this episode as well, combining both would either produce too long an episode or condense the events too narrowly to cover either theater appropriately. So I've decided to focus on Spain for this episode, with the next shifting our gaze back to Sicily and the Italian peninsula. Since it is easier to focus on specific theaters for the latter half of the Second Punic War, we will be skipping ahead in the timeline a fair bit to cover the war in Spain. Never fear, we will rewind the clock to do justice to events elsewhere in the following episodes. As mentioned last time, at this point in the Second Punic War, the action slows significantly from its spectacularly rapid opening. While Trebia, Trasimene, and Cannae all occurred within two years of Hannibal's descent into Italy, from Cannae onwards a long, slow grind ensued. With Hannibal entangled at Capua, the war shifted to other fronts where the Roman Senate, keenly aware of the strategic significance of these overseas conflicts, Continued to pour resources into campaigns far afield, even while Hannibal ravaged up and down the Italian peninsula. In retrospect, the Senate exercised a remarkable degree of foresight in adhering to the broader Roman strategy after Cannae, cut off Hannibal in Italy, and attacked Carthage and her holdings where they were most vulnerable. The Senate's use of proconsuls, a means of extending a Roman general's imperium or command, Past the expiration of his consulship, allowed for Rome to keep experienced commanders in the field for years at a time, further enhancing her ability to maintain a cohesive strategy. The office of proconsul itself was an ingenious way around the peculiar difficulties the Roman constitution presented as the empire grew. As highlighted in Episode 17, only an elected consul could lead a Roman army. In the early days of the Republic, when the city was embroiled in local conflicts, this rarely presented any issues. As Rome's wars began to be fought further afield, however, campaigns would often not conclude at the end of a single year. With the consul's term limited to one year, what would happen if his term expired mid-campaign? The solution was the office of proconsul, whereby the Senate extended a consul's military command while conferring his civil authority on the newly elected leaders. In theory, the proconsuls acted on behalf of the reigning consul. In practice, they possessed nearly all the authority of a consul in their respective sphere. Such was the case with the Scipio brothers in Spain. Long overshadowed by the titanic struggle in Italy, The first few years of war in Spain had consisted of a fluctuating series of battles and skirmishes which quickly revealed that the Barkid Empire, for all its glossy veneer, rested on a foundation of sand. As we remember from episode 38, the two Scipio brothers, Gnaeus Scipio and Publius Cornelius Scipio, had gained a victory at the Battle of the Ebro River. This successful Roman landing and subsequent triumph Signaled a general revolt among Carthage's would be allies, leaving the Carthaginian commander on the scene, Hannibal's younger brother, Hasdrubal Barca, to spend the majority of 216 BC bogged down with squashing one rebellion after another. This left Gnaeus and Publius free to consolidate their power base in Taraco and chip away at Barcad power by alternately raiding and wooing pro Carthaginian tribes. Ordered by the Carthaginian Senate to reinforce Hannibal in Italy, Hasdrubal initially objected, citing the fragility of the Barkid coalition in Spain and the constant pressure wrought by the Scipios. The Carthaginian Senate refused to change its orders due to the pressing needs of the war in Italy, but the senators yielded to Hasdrubal's request that he be reinforced. In 216 BC, an army was sent to Spain under a Carthaginian general named Himoko, to free up Hasdrubal and allow him to follow in his brother's footsteps across Gaul and over the Alps. Before departing, Hasdrubal excited further ill will among the Spaniards by demanding a monetary contribution from all the subject tribes to pay for his passage across southern Gaul. As the historian Dexter Hoyas points out, the fact that reinforcements were needed from Africa also indicates that, Though Spain was overflowing with hardened warriors, they had grown reluctant to fight in the Carthaginian cause. When news reached the Scipio brothers about Hasdrubal's pending departure, they immediately sprang into action. Having already succeeded in delaying Spanish reinforcements from reaching Hannibal for nearly three years, the two Roman generals knew that they must prevent Hasdrubal from leaving the peninsula in order to prevent further disaster in Italy. If Hannibal, bereft of men and material as he was, had still managed to inflict three crushing defeats in Rome's heartland, what might he do if reinforced by an army helmed by his brother from Barcad Spain? Thus, after a long debate, the brothers crossed the Ebro and laid siege to the pro-Carthaginian town of Ibera. Eager to seize any opportunity to remain in Spain, Hasdrubal attacked a nearby town that had recently defected to the Romans, a move which forced the Roman commanders to advance on Hasdrubal directly. In what became known as the Battle of Ibera, Hasdrubal realized just how far the Carthaginians had sunk in the Spaniards' esteem. While the Romans deployed in their traditional triplex acies, Hasdrubal placed his Spanish auxiliaries in the center, with the Libyans on his left flank and a Carthaginian levy on his right, bolstered by the Numidians. Livy colorfully notes that Hasdrubal's Numidians consisted of quote, those which had been trained to ride into battle, leading a spare horse. Such was the quickness of these men, and so highly trained were their mounts that often in the heat of an engagement, when the horse they were riding tired, they would leap like circus riders fully armed upon the back of the fresh one. End quote. Besides these acrobatic horsemen, Hasdrubal also possessed some elephants potentially the same 21 that Hannibal had left behind before his departure. In all, the Carthaginians likely mustered around 25,000 men, with the Romans matching them with a roughly equal number of legionaries. Whatever confidence Hasdrubal might have felt at the sight of his varied army quickly dissipated. When the Roman center closed to fight with the Spanish, the latter routed immediately because, in the words of Livy, they quote, naturally preferred defeat in their own country to being dragged off to victory in Italy, End quote. seeing the Carthaginian' centre cave, the would-be Numidian acrobats fled as well, carrying Hasdrubal's elephants off with them, despite these twin disasters. The Libyans and Carthaginians on the wings fought valiantly. And for a time, they nearly enveloped the Romans on either side, yet they were cut off from one another, and Roman numbers and morale soon told the few remaining Carthaginians, including Hasdrubal, at last admitted defeat and yielded the field. The defeat at Ibera sparked another revolt among the Iberian tribes who now flocked to the Scipios banner. Hasdrubal limped back to New Carthage in southeastern Spain where a sliver of territory remained loyal. For the next three years, he would play defense, holding off the Scipio's steady advance and writing increasingly urgent pleas to Carthage for more reinforcements. Yet Ibera did not signal the utter ruin of barked Spain. Events in Italy, particularly Cannae, necessitated the concentration of resources to counter Hannibal, and though the Senate had the foresight to maintain a presence overseas in Spain and other theaters, it could not or would not significantly reinforce those fronts in the years following the great roman defeat thus though hasdrubal was cooped up in southern spain the scipios could not risk the destruction of their own army by an audacious assault on new carthage itself leading to a rather inconclusive few years things changed in 211 bc a year prior the romans had captured the important mining town of castulo which was also home to Hannibal's wife, Imilus, Sensing that now was the time to end the war in Iberia, the Scipio brothers marched south to confront the three Carthaginian armies which now operated in Spain, one under Hasdrubal Barca, another under a general also confusingly named Hasdrubal, this time the son of Himilco, and the last under the command of Hannibal's other brother, Mago, who had arrived from Africa in the interim with reinforcements originally earmarked for Italy. Taking two-thirds of the Roman force, Publius confronted Mago and Hasdrubal son of Himilco, while Gnaeus led the remaining one-third to attack Hasdrubal Barca. To supplement his reduced forces, Gnaeus hired 20,000 Celtiberians from central Spain to join him, Livy claims that the Celtiberians were the first mercenaries the Romans ever employed. For once, however, the Carthaginian expertise in mercenary warfare paid off. After opening secret negotiations with the tribal leaders in the Roman camp, Hasdrubal son of Himilco bribed the Celtiberians to abandon Gnaeus once he was deep in enemy territory. Livy pauses his narrative just long enough to give a characteristic lesson for future Roman commanders not to trust foreigners without sufficient Romans nearby to keep them honest. He then picks up with the chase of Gnaeus across Spain as the Carthaginians pursued the diminished Roman army. Publius fared no better than his brother. After crossing into Carthaginian territory, his advancing legionaries suddenly found themselves attacked by a new and terrible threat. This came in the form of Massinissa, a seventeen-year-old Numidian prince of the Massylii, traditional enemies of the other major Numidian tribe, the Massacili. Massinissa had fought with Carthaginian forces to squash a rebellion led by the Massacillian king Syphax. In a fierce and brilliant campaign, Massinissa crushed Syphax before crossing over to Spain to aid the beleaguered Carthaginians. Now, Massinissa proved a plague to his Roman opponents. Riding barebacked, hurling javelins, and then retreating, the Numidian horsemen had for centuries served as a crucial and invaluable arm of Carthage's war machine. Massinissa maximized this mobility in a guerrilla-style war of terror, leading his nimble tribesmen in continuous raids against the plodding Romans the young Numidian prince cut off patrols and foragers day and night, attacked Roman outposts, and even galloped through the center of the Roman camp with impunity. Pinned within the walls of his camp, and threatened with starvation if he remained, Publius determined on the desperate course of a night march across country. News had reached him of a force of Spaniards advancing under a pro-Carthaginian chieftain, and Scipio hoped that he would be able to surprise and disperse these reinforcements before they were able to join up with the Carthaginians. When the two forces met, a confused melee ensued in the dark, and for a time, the Romans believed they might cut through. That is, until the omnipresent Masinissa appeared with his warriors followed close behind by the main force under the Carthaginian generals. Surrounded, the Romans fought valiantly until Publius fell pierced by a lance. At that, the few surviving legionaries melted into the darkness. No news reached Gnaeus of his brother's fate. Nonetheless, he felt ill at ease seeing that all three Carthaginian generals had now joined together on his flanks to destroy him, correctly guessing that they could not have done so had Publius not suffered a reverse. Fearful of being enveloped in turn. Gnaeus urged his men on in a fighting retreat as the ubiquitous Numidians swarmed around his men. When night fell, Gnaeus ordered his men to take up their positions on a small hill, yet even this provided no safety, for the ground was too hard to dig and completely bare of vegetation. The legionaries assembled a haphazard barricade of pack saddles and baggage to defend themselves, but all must have known that the end was nigh. Before dawn, Gnaeus and most of his men lay dead on the field. The nearly simultaneous deaths of two Roman proconsuls saw another swing on the pendulum of Spanish loyalty. Tribes revolted or repudiated their Roman allegiance, and those who remained independent now viewed Hasdrubal's overtures with more favor. Overnight, all the gains of the Scipios over the past eight years evaporated save for a small strip of coastline above the Ebro. This too would have been lost but for the heroics of Lucius Marcius, a man of equestrian or middle-class rank, whom Livy concedes had quote, more dash and intelligence than might be expected from his station in life, end quote. Despite his lack of blue-blood credentials, Marcius rallied the dispirited legionaries and led them in an ambush, which Livy dismissively calls a quote pudic stratagem. Marcius surprised and slaughtered numerous unwary Carthaginian soldiers, and even captured Mago and Hasdrubal Barca's camps, the latter of which contained a silver shield weighing 137 pounds, bearing Hasdrubal's portrait. Interestingly, this shield, or one like it, remained on the Capitoline Hill in Rome, until it was destroyed by fire in eighty four b c with the loss of so many men and what was doubtless his favorite accessory, Hasdrubal chose not to risk another battle, contenting himself with a strategy of containment against Marcius. This choice would prove fatal in the end, since it meant that Hannibal would receive no reinforcements during the crucial year of two eleven b c More on that in a later episode. For all Marcius's heroics, it was clear to the Senate that a real commander, one legally appointed and not merely elected by the troops, was needed to right the war in Spain. In 210 BC, Gaius Claudius Nero had been dispatched as propraetor, a position analogous to a proconsul, of Spain, but he was quickly recalled for unknown reasons. Livy gives a vivid description of the tenseness of the elections which followed. Quote, on election day, everyone went down to the campus. People turned towards the magistrates and watched the faces of the leading citizens, the likely candidates. They were exchanging glances with one another. A murmur arose that things were desperate, that hope of saving the country had been so utterly lost that no one dared accept the Spanish command." End quote. In this moment of uncertainty when all the older patricians hesitated to put forward their names to a command they considered to be a death sentence, Publius Cornelius Scipio the Younger stepped forward. Though only 24 years of age, Scipio had experienced a lifetime's worth of military service. Having first seen action at the Battle of Ticinus, where he had saved his late father's life, Scipio had spent the next seven years fighting against an enemy whose sophistication in military strategy and propaganda had honed his own skills to meet the challenge. He had already proven his extraordinary courage and devotion to Rome in the aftermath of Cannae by dispersing the abortive attempt to flee Italy. Now he alone volunteered to take up the command which had been the death warrant of his father and uncle. The people were so moved by Scipio's bravery that they immediately elected him to the vacant position, despite the fact that he should have been barred from command on the basis of his not having climbed up the ranks of the cursus honorum. Even when some hesitated over his extreme youth, Scipio easily overcame their concerns with a lofty speech, proving that his tender age could not hide the fact that before the assembly stood a remarkable man. Scipio himself carefully cultivated a heroic image from an early age. Rumors abounded that he had been conceived by a large snake, supposedly symbolizing Jupiter, which had lingered in his mother's bedroom, thus imparting to him demigod status. What Scipio's father thought of this story is unrecorded, but Scipio himself, although never openly affirming it, would often go sit in the Temple of Jupiter on the Capitoline Hill for long periods of time before making any momentous decisions, as if receiving instructions from the deity himself. He also represented his orders as coming from dreams and visions that he had from the gods, a thing which many superstitious Romans took as a sign that the gods were back on their side. Besides obviously elevating his prestige above the rank of common mortals, Scipio's claims, both those explicit and implicit, offered a useful counter to Hannibal's propaganda of being a modern-day Hercules. In effect, Scipio said that though the Carthaginians imitated Hercules, he himself was Hercules reborn, conceived by the chief of the Roman gods just as the Greek demigod of yore. Pretenses of divinity alone would not remedy the situation in Spain. Scipio arrived on the peninsula in the winter of 210 B.C., bringing with him 10,000 foot, 1,000 horse, and 30 quinqueremes, bringing the total Roman forces in Spain to roughly 27,500 men. Despite his youth, Scipio's reputation preceded him, and his arrival immediately restored confidence in both the legions and allies. The Greek city of Massilia sent honorary ships to escort Scipio into harbor at Emporia. As he moved about the country inspecting his wintering troops, delegations from numerous Spanish tribes presented themselves as a mark of respect, and his words of encouragement and calm demeanor inspired Roman and Spaniard alike to hope again. Scipio also wisely promoted the popular Marcius to serve on his staff, cementing the allegiance of the veterans who had fought under Marcius for the past year. Having spent the spring reorganizing his men, Scipio decided on a course of action that would show he was nothing like the Roman generals who had come before. Giving out that he was marching to attack the three Carthaginian armies still operating below the Ebro, Scipio secretly sent his men and fleet south to strike at the heart of Barkid Spain, New Carthage. As we remember from episode 33, New Carthage, established by Hasdrubal the Fair, served as the provincial capital of all of Spain. Here, armories, shipbuilders, silver mines, and mints supplied and funded the Barkid war machine, while the Iberian hostages held within the city bound the subject tribes to their Carthaginian alliance. It was the diplomatic, military, and economic center of Carthaginian Spain. Formidable walls surrounded it on the landward side, while the magnificent harbor was shielded by an island which left only a narrow entrance from the sea. Undeterred, Scipio besieged the landward side of the city while his fleet blockaded the harbor. Unbeknownst to him, he had picked the perfect time to attack. Only a thousand mercenaries held the city, along with 2,000 Carthaginian citizens, against Scipio's nearly 28,000 men. With Hasdrubal Barca a mere ten days' march away, the defenders knew they only had to hold out long enough for relief to come. Scipio understood this as well, and he determined to take the city by storm before his strict timetable expired. Rallying his men for the difficult task ahead, Scipio said, in the words of Livy, You are about to assault the walls of one town, but in that one town you will have taken the whole of Spain. This is their citadel, their granary, their treasury, their arsenal, a storehouse for everything they need, end quote. After repulsing a preliminary sortie from the defenders, Scipio launched an all-out attack. As usual, Livy gives the most detailed description of what followed. The Romans surged forward, regardless of missiles, careless of wounds. Neither the walls nor the soldiers on guard there could stop their ascent or their eager rivalry to be the first up. In the defense of the walls, neither men nor missiles were as effective as the walls themselves, for a few ladders were long enough to reach the top, and the longer the ladders, the less secure they were. The first man up would find himself unable to get over, others would be mounting behind him, and the ladder would break under their weight. Sometimes the ladders stood the strain, but the height made the climbers giddy, and they fell. When everywhere ladders were breaking and men and success was bringing added keenness and courage to the enemy, the recall was sounded. Scipio gave his men little respite after the failure of the first assault. Ordering a fresh attack in the place of the one which had failed, he then led a group of 500 soldiers across a lagoon which fishermen had previously informed him was crossable at low tide. In characteristic fashion, Scipio attributed this local knowledge to divine intervention, stating that Neptune himself had made a way for the Romans through the sea. At the end of the lagoon, the wall was only a few feet high, and Scipio and his troops were soon within the city. No enemies opposed them, all attention being concentrated on the fighting around the gate. Polybius reports that Scipio, directed his soldiers, according to the Roman custom, against the people in the city, telling them to kill everyone they met and to spare no one, and not to start looting until they received the order. The purpose of this custom is to strike terror. Accordingly, one can see in cities captured by the Romans not only humans who had been slaughtered, but even dogs sliced in two and the limbs of other animals cut off. On this occasion, the amount of such slaughter was very great. End quote. Only when the Carthaginian commander on the scene surrendered did Scipio give the command to cease the massacre. The brilliance of Scipio's victory at New Carthage can hardly be overstated. At a single stroke, he severed the critical link between Spain and North Africa, cutting off the three Carthaginian armies from resupply from home. Besides denying the enemy their best port, The capture of New Carthage also left Hasdrubal bereft of his power base. The Hall of Booty was staggering. 10,000 citizens, 2,000 artisans, 18 warships, 401 large siege engines, 476 small siege engines, innumerable scorpions, armor, weapons, and missiles, 276 gold platters, each a pound in weight, 18,300 pounds of silver, not including silver vessels, 400,000 measures of wheat, and 270,000 measures of barley. This haul did not even include the cargoes of 63 merchant ships, later seized in the harbor, which supplemented the prodigious plunder with bronze, iron, sailcloth, and timber. Besides these material gains, Scipio scored a tremendous diplomatic coup by releasing all the Spanish hostages on the promise that their tribes would join the Roman alliance thus cleverly portraying himself as liberator instead of a new conqueror. Livy paints Scipio in a proto-chivalric moment when discovering one of the beautiful princesses offered to him as a war prize was betrothed to a Celtiberian chieftain not only freed the girl but reunited her with her fiance an episode which further ingratiated himself with the Spanish people. Schooled in the Hannibalic arts of war, Scipio, like many Romans before him, copied what was best of his enemy's strategy, freeing captives without ransom and winning hearts and minds to his cause. Like a true Hercules, Scipio decapitated Barcad Spain with a single stroke the loss of so great a city would prove fatal to Hasdrubal's efforts to hold the Spaniards in check. Tribes revolted and came over to Scipio in droves, and by 208 BC, Scipio had the upper hand on the peninsula. Marching on Hasdrubal's camp in bicula he pointed to the Carthaginian ramparts, boasting, quote, New Carthage had higher walls, and Roman soldiers climbed them, Neither hills, nor citadel, nor even the sea withstood our arms. In the ensuing battle, Scipio thoroughly routed the hapless Hasdrubal. Convinced that Spain was already lost, Hasdrubal gathered up what men he could, as well as his elephants, and set off for the Pyrenees, on the long delayed march to Italy, to join his brother. He had fought in Spain for almost a decade, and in the end, this young Roman upstart had driven him out with no chance of return. So rapid and so great were Scipio's victories that the Spaniards acclaimed him their king after the Battle of Baecula. With characteristic diplomacy, Scipio parried this danger with ease, avoiding giving offence either to his republican soldiers or the exultant tribesmen. The greatest title he bore, he told them, was that given to him by his soldiers. Imperator, or commander in chief. He continued, quote, The name of king, so great elsewhere, is insupportable to Roman ears. If a kingly mind is in your eyes the noblest thing in human nature, you may attribute it to me in thought, but you must avoid the use of the word. End quote. Barked Spain would limp on for a few more years. Mago Barca and his fellow commanders would try in vain to stem the tide with fresh mercenaries, but in 206 BC, Scipio won a decisive victory at the Battle of Alypha. It was at Alypha that Scipio at last revealed he had mastered all the tricks learnt in Hannibal's school. Modifying the traditional triplex acies, Scipio placed his unreliable Spanish infantry in the center of his line, leaving his veteran Romans to hold the flanks. In a move reminiscent of Cannae, Scipio ordered his veterans to advance on the wings, easily besting the Carthaginian Spanish before swerving in on the Carthaginian center. The defeat saw the final death knell of Barcad Spain. The senior command retreated to Gades, one of the first Phoenician colonies ever established in Iberia. After witnessing a revolt in Gades itself, Mago Barca sailed for Italy to rejoin his brother. Barely three decades after Hamilcar Barca first set foot ashore, Barca in Spain was no more. Next time, we will return to our roots and witness Syracuse finally come off the bench for one last hurrah. Until then, take care and read more history.